Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 145b, Funding the Regime. Today we go slightly deeper into the restoration project of King Tutankhamun. The pharaoh and his government invested heavily in temples and statues for the gods, but they had to pay for those somehow. Today we meet some people who funded the king's projects. This episode comes to you on behalf of Ryan, Bruce, and Philip. They joined the Patreon as overseers in February 2021, for which I am most grateful. May you find gold in the hills and enjoy a safe return. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the show. The year was 1336 BCE, approximately. Regnal year 8, under the majesty of Neb Keperu Ra, the living Horus, Tut Ankh Amun. The king of Egypt was 17 years old, give or take, and in the past few years, his government had invested heavily in projects up and down the Nile. The restoration of the temples was a worthy initiative. It is the most famous achievement of this regime. But as impressive as those works are, they were also expensive. Tutankhamun's government spent nearly a decade investing in temples, art, and labor. Countless people worked for years to produce the required goods. As you can imagine, all of that investment had a cost. Today, we think of the pharaohs as having unlimited wealth. But of course, Tutankhamun's government was like any other. Their projects required resources, funding to achieve. In year 8, we get a really great example of a pharaoh dealing with finances. A stone stealer, now in a museum in Liverpool, preserves the record of Tutankhamun's policies. It shows the young king organising the taxes. The text is short, but informative. It says, quote, Year 8 Third month of the growing season, Peret. Day 21, under the majesty of Horus, the son of Ra, Tutankhamun, given life. On this day, his majesty commanded the overseer of the treasury, Maya, to tax the entire land, 
to institute divine offerings for all the gods of the tilled land, Egypt. Maya should do this from Aswan in the south to Baal-Amun in the north. End quote. Let's break that down. The decree opens with a date, regnal year 8, third month of Peret, day 21. The date is surprisingly informative, and it gives us a good sense of the timing for this decree. Peret was the season of growth. At this point, the farmers were tending their fields and looking forward to the upcoming harvest. That harvest was still a month or two away, so Tutankhamun's decree was well-timed. The administrators, the people who would gather the actual taxes, had a couple of months to organise their business and start the process. So even the date gives us a little bit of between-the-lines information. Now we can move to the people themselves. Tutankhamun issued his speech directly to one man. His name was Maya, and he was the overseer of the royal treasury. Maya was easily one of the most important people in Tutankhamun's government. We will meet him repeatedly in future episodes. For now, here are the basics. Maya was the Imira Perhej. Literally, this translates as Overseer of the Silver House or Overseer of the White House, a fun coincidence. Generally, historians translate this title as Overseer of the Treasury. Basically, Maya was in charge of finances. He was responsible for organising the resources of the government. He kept Tutankhamun funded. So Maya would manage the business of taxation. Everything that was about to happen was under his authority. Oh, and just so we're clear, Maya of the Treasury is different to Maya the Royal Nurse, whom we met in episode 144. In English, the two names sound the same, but they have different spellings in Egyptian, and they would have sounded distinct to the ancients. Unfortunately, both this man and woman have received similar names in modern scholarship. So, just to be clear, Maya the Treasurer is different to Maya the Nurse. Today, I am only talking about the treasurer. Tutankhamun commanded Maya to tax the land of Egypt, to gather resources from every part of the kingdom. According to the text, Maya should go as far south as Aswan, or Abu, and as far north as Balamun, or Sema Neb Bedet. In other words, Maya should tax every town within the two lands. A big job. The actual process of taxation was relatively simple. From later records, we get a sense that mid-ranking officials, scribes and so forth, would head out from the royal palace. They would sail up and down the Nile, visiting towns and villages. At each stopping point, the scribes would summon the representatives of each town. They would announce the king's requirements, and the collection would begin. Farmers would bring a portion of their harvest. Craft workers might bring some of their goods. The rate of taxation varied in different periods, but it could be as high as 30% or more. So this was not a light obligation. Farmers, producers, would hand over a big chunk of the harvest. The treasuries would gather a lot of resources. That is a really simple overview of Egyptian taxation. 
the system was intricate, and we have a variety of words for different forms of tax. So this is just a basic idea. In future episodes, we will get more opportunities to dive deeper into the system. For now, let's just focus on Tutankhamun's decree. The king ordered Maya to gather a tax called Heteri. This is a special kind of tax often related to the royal payroll. Basically, the Egyptian government employed a lot of people. Artists, administrators, craft workers, that sort of thing. Many people who did jobs for the crown received payment from the Heteri tax. So when Tutankhamun specifies that he is issuing a Heteri, that does give us a clue what this is all about. On the surface, the tax is for the temples. But if we read between the lines, we might say that it was paying for the restoration as a project. If Heteri tax was intended for the workers, then we have a good idea what those workers were doing. Tutankhamun's major project is the restoration of the temples. So when the king wanted new monuments, new statues, new art, he had to pay the people who made it. This Heteri tax could be a record of Tutankhamun funding that project. That is my personal speculation, but the fact that the king describes this tax as Heteri has me wondering if the goal was to pay for all of those workers. Those people did not work for free, the government had to pay them. This stealer might give the receipt. Whatever the exact purpose is, this decree is a lovely record of day-to-day business. Instead of grand proclamations, we get a hint of something straightforward. Go forth, gather resources, bring them to the treasury. I love stuff like this. It gives a sense of the realities, the messy business of government. In the modern world, it is easy to look at the grand monuments and forget the thousands of decisions that had to happen to make those monuments exist. We don't get that many opportunities to see this kind of record. I am glad the stealer survives. You may be wondering, did Tutankhamun make this decree himself? Did the proclamation actually come from the king? Well, I would say probably. By year 8, Tutankhamun was about 17 years old, so he was mature by Egyptian standards. Certainly, he was old enough to participate in the affairs of state. Whether Tutankhamun decided any policies is another question. The young king had many advisors and officials who actually pulled the strings of government. So it's unclear how many decisions Tutankhamun actually made. Either way, we can imagine the moment of this event. Appearing at the court, enthroned in splendor, the teenage ruler could speak the words that his government had decided. Maya, the treasurer, bowed low as he received the pharaoh's instructions. If nothing else, this text gives a hint of Tutankhamun in action. The taxation decree may not be the most glamorous of Tutankhamun's records, but it's one of my personal favourites. I like it when the curtain pulls to one side and we can see the backstage business. The impressive monuments that dazzle us today came from hard-working individuals. Those people, thousands of them, 
needed food, supplies, and amenities to do their jobs properly. When a text like this survives, we catch a glimpse of the way the Egyptians organised those things. So, next time you gaze on a lavish temple, take a moment to consider the business behind the splendour. After the break, we see another aspect of Tutankhamun's royal funding. The king used a lot of gold for divine statues and royal treasures. But gold does not grow on trees or fields. So where did he get it? In chapter 2, we meet some of the people who gathered the pharaoh's gold. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty, to its descent into the infamous reign of terror, there's plenty to discuss, and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities, and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. Chapter 2 Everyone knows that Egypt is the land of gold. From the smallest child to the most jaded professor, the reputation of Egyptian gold is second to none. And when it comes to gold, there is nobody more famous than Tutankhamun. The young king's treasures are renowned. But where did all of that metal come from, and how did the Egyptians acquire it? Very briefly, I'd like to look at the gold mining industry, in the days of Tutankhamun. The ancients mined their gold in the east and the south. Pharaohs sent expeditions into the hills between the Nile and the Red Sea. This region, called the Eastern Desert, was a fabulous source of gold, copper, stone, and wild animals for hunting. So when a king needed gold, they sent their agents east. Miners left the River Nile, and travelled on dusty roads into the wilderness. Along the way, these people left traces of their activities, records of their presence in out-of-the-way spaces. Archaeologists surveying these areas have found huge amounts of material. They have located towns or villages for the miners themselves. They have found the tools used by the workers. They have traced the roads that people travelled, and they have identified the mineral deposits that the ancients were excavating. They have even found the rubbish dumps, where miners discarded the unwanted ore. So, today, archaeologists have a decent understanding of the gold mining. There is still a lot of work to do, but we are getting a basic picture. So how did the ancients mine this precious metal? First, the surveyors and prospectors would find new deposits. 
the places where gold was concentrated in the rock. On the available evidence, the prospectors seem to have been talented explorers. They could trace the veins of gold running through different rock formations. They could even identify when the vein changed direction and follow it with reasonable accuracy. In other words, the miners were skilled at surveying, finding the best spots. That made it easier to find the metal. Once they identified a good place, the miners set up camp. They tended to put their houses in old river valleys, or wadis, and on the side of hills. The miners would use small stones and mud to build their houses. Today, archaeologists can find those houses in hills and valleys in the region. When they found their deposit and set up camp, the miners would begin quarrying. They could do this in two ways, either by digging a scoop into the hillside, or by going down into the earth. Basically, we have evidence for surface mining, and for underground work. Working on the surface was easier, you had more space, and you could work faster. But when they needed to reach those deep deposits, the miners were able to go down. They dug shafts deep into the rock. In small teams, they would clamber down these shafts and dig ever deeper, following the seams of gold. So you can imagine the miners working in darkness. They carried lamps or candles to light their way. This work was cramped and claustrophobic, but it was probably cooler than the surface. Up in the valley quarries, the miners had to deal with scorching sunlight and dangerous animals. So depending on your preferences, the shaft mines and the surface quarries could be equally enticing. Either way, it was going to be a hard job. Gold does not come out pure and fresh. It appears in flecks or grains embedded in the rock. So the miners had to process the raw stone, the ore, to get the gold out. They did this with a simple but effective method. The miners would process the ore in teams. One team would extract the rock itself from the quarry, then they would take the ore to their colleagues. The second team would place the ore on hard, flat stones. Then, using heavy pounders made of rock, they would grind the ore. Slowly, painstakingly, they would break the rock down. The technique is basically the same as a mortar and pestle. Like millers, the gold miners would pound and grind the ore, breaking it down as small as possible. Once they had crushed the ore, the miners washed the stone. They did this in a really cool way. The workers would build tables out of stone and mud. These tables were slanted, about 20 degrees or so, which meant that the miners could put the crushed ore on the surface and then pour water over it. The water would dissolve the smaller particles, separating the flecks of gold from rock and silt. Then they would collect that gold as it washed down the bottom. The method was simple but effective. By grinding the ore as small as possible and then washing it, they could obtain the rich metal. You will find similar techniques in many cultures through history. The last phase of the mining is slightly unclear but archaeologists have an idea of a likely method. It's possible that the ancients used animal skins, like sheep or goats, as a kind of sieve. 
They would stretch a sheepskin or goatskin at the bottom of the washing table. As the water, silt, and metal washed down the table, it would collect on the fleece. When they were done, the fleeces would be covered in mud and gold. Then, the miners could burn the fleece. By setting it on fire, the gold would melt and coalesce into nuggets. Then, when it was cool, the miners could simply sift the ashes and collect the metal. That is slightly speculative, but we do have evidence for the Egyptians taking goats or sheep on their expeditions. So, it is quite possible this was their method. That is a really simple overview of gold mining. I will come back to it another time when we have more detailed records. For now, it is enough to know that King Tutankhamun's agents were skilled at finding and mining gold. The surveyors could identify rich deposits, the miners could extract ore, and the workers could process that ore to obtain the yellow metal. Basically, the miners had developed a really effective method for acquiring gold. As a result, kings like Tutankhamun enjoyed a steady flow of riches. Gold mining may not sound glamorous, but it was important. All that treasure that we see in museums came from these dry desert hills. Today, King Tutankhamun is the poster child for gold and glitz. Well, archaeologists are uncovering the stories of the people who obtained that gold. It is an essential part of our quest to reconstruct the world of these people. So, I've done the broad survey of gold mining itself. What about the individuals who actually went on these expeditions? Well, from the reign of Tutankhamun, we have evidence for some people. To round out this episode, I'd like to introduce a man who was involved in the gold business. His name was Hoi. Hoi was a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. He was extremely noteworthy, and we will do the proper introductions in the future. For now, I want to briefly touch on Hoi's relationship to the gold mining industry. Hoi served Tutankhamun in many jobs. One of his major titles was Imira Khasut Nebu en Imen. This translates as Overseer of the Hill Countries of Gold of Amun. Basically, Hoi was responsible for the gold mines. He was the one who organized and managed the expeditions. So Hoi was involved in the business that produced the treasures of Tutankhamun. It was a major job. Hoi recorded his work in his tomb. A monument in the cemeteries of Waset, Luxor, contained the burial place of this man. Hoi's tomb is lavish and important, and again, I will describe it properly in the future. For now, let's just focus on the gold. In his tomb, Hoi comes before Tutankhamun. The king sits on his throne, and Hoi bows to his majesty. Behind Hoi, servants and colleagues bring the treasures of the southern lands. Groups of southerners from Wawat and Kush give tribute to the pharaoh. A lot of that tribute is gold. The tomb of Hoi gives a hint at the wealth of the eastern and southern mines. The paintings show many items of yellow metal. We see gold nuggets piled into pyramid shapes. 
We see gold dust gathered in sacks. We see bracelets heaped into bowls. We even see an elaborate diorama that seems to be made of pure gold. Behind Hoi, a strange ornament sits on the table. At the centre, there is a pyramid of gold nuggets. To either side, there are small palm trees. These are painted yellow, so they seem to be ornaments of gold. Between the trees, the figures of southerners bow and raise their hands to praise Tutankhamun. Again, these small figures are yellow, as if they are made of gold. Finally, the pièce de résistance. A pair of giraffes, fashioned from gold, completes the diorama. Basically, it looks like Hoi brought to Tankamun an elaborate piece of metalwork, a display of his success obtaining the gold, and the skill of Pharaoh's artists. It is a spectacular scene. Obviously, Hoi was an administrator, a government official. Whether he ever went out on an expedition is unclear. At the very least, his tomb gives a hint of his management. If we combine that with the real, physical traces of the miners' lives, we can get a basic sense of the operation. So we have records of the people who went out into the deserts. When King Tutankhamun needed gold, he sent out people like Hoi. The overseer of the hill countries of gold, Hoi organised the expeditions. Those expeditions, led by skilled prospectors and surveyors, scouted new seams of gold in the hills and valleys. Then, hard-working individuals set up camps, dug quarries and shafts, and processed huge quantities of ore. Day by day, their back-breaking labour extracted the precious metal that Egypt's king demanded. Eventually, that raw gold went back to the Nile Valley. There, skilled metal workers melted it, purified it, and fashioned it into treasures and trinkets. From tiny rings and bracelets, to golden images of the gods, to fabulous coffins and mummy masks, the long labours of these people added step by step to the golden legacy of Tutankhamun. Pharaoh Tutankhamun is the poster child for gold and glitz. Tutankhamun's treasures fill magazines, websites, travelling exhibitions, and they draw crowds of visitors to the museums of Cairo. In other words, the treasures of Tutankhamun, sourced from the eastern deserts, contribute a great deal to the modern tourist industry. So, in the 1330s BCE, Egyptians spent resources and effort on acquiring gold. 3,000 years later, Tutankhamun's treasures bring new resources into the country. Egypt continues to profit from the work of their ancestors. This brings us to the end of today's episode. In our next chapter, we will explore the culmination of Tutankhamun's restoration The king has initiated his project, he has organised the practical business, and he has obtained some of the funding. Now it is time to see how it all came together. A grand festival in a lavish temple that displayed Tutankhamun's piety. In the next narrative episode, we will describe Tutankhamun in Opet. 
However, that will need to wait a few weeks. I have some important work to complete on my PhD, and I need to focus on that. So we are going to take a quick break from the narrative. Approximately three weeks. Not to worry though, we still have some content. Through the month of June, I have a short series of interviews on some wonderful topics. First, we speak with the newly minted Dr. Brianna Jackson, who specialises in the temples of Aten that existed in this time. Then, Dr. Martin Odler will come on the show to explain ancient Egyptian tools and the fascinating craft behind their metalworking, including in the Age of the Pyramids. Finally, I have a special guest, as Michael Levy, composer for Ancient Lyre and Harp, comes on the show to discuss music. Michael's songs have appeared on many podcast episodes, and he joins the show to explore them. So the narrative will resume at the end of June. In the meantime, I have some interviews with truly wonderful guests. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode was by Keith Zizzer and Jeffrey Goodman, with additional interludes by Luke Chaos. If you enjoyed the music, please consider supporting these artists. They generously allow me to use their songs, and I am eternally grateful. Follow the links in the episode description to learn more about their work, and to hear their wonderful compositions. That's all from me. I will see you soon. Take care, and may the desert roads always take you where you need to go. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.